Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. Uh, well, Selmy, you certainly dragged that out. Dr. Alex Noisley is speaking today again with Dr. Andreas Jenke because it's journal club time. Dr. Jenke has chosen from the August 2023 number of JPGN three articles for discussion. One of them is from Brisbane in Queensland, Australia, and from Lucknow, Jodhpur, and Rishikesh, all in India, and that is a thousand kilometer span across the center and north of the subcontinent. Yes, I went to the atlas and looked it up. Oral tacrolimus in steroid refractory and steroid-dependent pediatric ulcerative colitis, a systematic review and meta-analysis. That's followed by a contribution from a group in San Diego, California, and collaborators at Columbia University in New York, an open-label, randomized, multi-center study of elafibrinor in children with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And then finally, um, up a little bit further north in Edmonton, which is in the province of Alberta, Canada, as somebody from the United States, I know that Alberta is what we use to take the chill off the air before it reaches North Dakota. Clinical features of children with serology, sorry, with serology negative, biopsy positive celiac disease. Andreas, why these three? Well, as always, I try to pick a variety which might interest all of our listeners and um, try to pick um, in particular studies that um, are of clinical relevance. And the first paper tackles a problem or a drug that has been long used um, in pediatric gastroenterology, tacrolimus or calcinorin inhibitors in general for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. And it nicely shows that uh, we do not have much data on it. So personally, I've used it several times already, always quite successful. And I was quite happy to have um, a review demonstrating how many studies have been done on this um, drug and um, in which patient you can use it and what are the, the benefits and so on. This is a meta-analysis rather than independent work at these various four centers, isn't it? Yes, definitely. You're right. And it it quickly shows from, from the very beginning that we do not have much data on it. So hmm. they, they were able to pull six retrospective and one prospective study out of um, all publications, which are somehow suitable to get analyzed, mm -hmm. which only include 166 patients. Okay. But what's what's interesting is that they focus on the very severe um, ulcerative colitis patients. So patients with a high PUKAI score, which are also steroid response uh, dependent or refractory. I don't know whether you know that, but pediatric ulcerative colitis is quite aggressive. So depending on, on the on the study you, you read, maybe or around 25% of the patients are either steroid dependent or steroid refractory. 
after the first year um, after diagnosis. How many come to colectomy? You mean in total? Well, in those two, in those two groups, in those, um, the steroid refractory and the steroid responsive but steroid dependent populations. Um, quite a substantial number, so it depends over time. So um, in the steroid dependent group, I would estimate that 50 to 60 percent overall will end with a colectomy. And the steroid resistant? Well, the steroid resistant or are, are um, even worse, actually. They just come to that same collect. They come to colectomy earlier, though, don't they? Yeah. So, what's the point of using tacrolimus? You said that it's it's it has a it has some value. In what settings? In the setting when you have a, a disease which is basically out of control. Mm -hmm. So, what what the authors nicely put together is that you can use tacrolimus just to get the patient quickly into remission. So 85% showed an initial response in this study. And compared to these anti-TNF-alpha um, drugs, you can or you usually have this effect two weeks after you started uh, with the tacrolimus. So, so this is also something I experienced with my own patients. So after two weeks, you have them in some kind of stable situation when you can decide how you proceed further. Do you go with the biological or do you offer some kind of um, different treatment? So this is a fire extinguisher? Yes, yes, you can use it as, as a fire extinguisher. Very nice, um, nice description. And what they also nicely show, or which is also absolutely in line with my own experience, is that you cannot use tacrolimus as a long-time therapy alone. Mm. Kidneys, so, that sort of uh, thing? Hmm? Sorry? Do, do they stop responding or do the kidneys go bad? What are the Well, what, what are the long-term I don't effects? know because no one knows. But what they showed is that after one year, only 15% are still stable on oh. tacrolimus alone. Okay, okay, okay. So, so it's, it's some kind of initial effect you, you have, which then the, the body adapts in some way, and it uh -huh. vanishes away. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's, so here you have another, something else in your armamentarium, in your collection of weapons that you can use in bad actor pediatric ulcerative colitis, and that certainly is worth knowing. Absolutely. And um, for the young researchers, I think it would be worth um, starting some kind of prospective multicenter trials um, so that we have a more realistic picture how it works, what thrust levels we should aim for. Because as mm -hmm. I mentioned in the beginning, the study quality is not very high. Well, if so, it works and your hope is that it can be further fine-tuned to keep on working and to work even better. Yes. 
Fantastic. I have had a fondness for tacrolimus ever since I first heard the drug's name and realized that if you substitute the C for a K, that is, if you spell it in German, then it's an anagram for muskrat oil. Muskrat oil. I'll just leave you with that. Okay. And uh, let's move along. Let's move on along to the next paper, yeah. which is, if I remember right, the one from San Diego. Yes, the one of uh, on Nash and uh, liver fibrosis. That's the one. Yeah. I have to say I was um, quite surprised when I saw um, that uh, there is a pediatric trial on um, Elafibrinor in Nash because um, I think now it's one and a half year or a little bit more than a year ago that the large phase three trial on Elafibrinor in adults has been stopped, the so-called Resolvit trial. Mm -hmm. because of non-superiority of the drug compared to placebo in terms of histological remission of the liver fibrosis. Compared to placebo as opposed to compared to other agents that are presently in use? And just compared to placebo because okay. at the moment there are no other agents that tackles this problem. This was a bridgehead, the first across the river. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's quite a good approach. This elafibrinor is a um, PPAR-alpha-delta agonist. So this is a nuclear receptor which modifies in the liver and also in other organs the gene expression and eventually leads to a reduced number of triglycerides and elevated production of HDL and um, a reduced production of LDL cholesterol, among others, by AP1 expression. So it's reasonable, it's a good idea, but what I always find interesting or surprising is that we try to treat such a multidimensional disease as obesity with one drug. I think this can't work. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. let's come back to, to this um, study in, in children. It's a very small study. It's um, open label. Ten kids. Ten kids is all Yeah, they just had. ten kids. Five with placebo and five with elafibrinor. No, no, no. It's just ten on elafibrinor because it's, it was a pharmacological study. They just ah, wanted okay. to know mm. whether um, the pharmacokinetics side effects oh, are, right. are acceptable for, it for children. It was the higher dose that gave good results and the lower dose that did nothing. Yes. This was really surprising because um, the higher dose reduced the triglycerides levels and the transaminase levels in adults. Yeah. So yeah. this is a little bit different. And from my point of view, it shows that drugs can have quite different effects in children compared to adults. And also yeah. NASH, from my personal point of view, is different in pediatric patients compared to adults. It so it looks different under the microscope, I'll tell you that. Yes. Oh, yeah. You can, you, maybe you, I didn't know that, but um, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit further. Well, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to lean out of that window before until I review it beforehand. Let's save okay. that for September. Okay. So the problem is that um, first you usually have some kind of um, 
genetic background, which is more prominent in children. It develops earlier. And on the other hand, in, in adults, sometimes you have already 10, 20, 30 years of severe obesity. So it's a different pathology from my point of view. Very different bone game. Yeah. Mm. And so I, wanted, I just wanted to highlight that this drug has been tested in some way in children. It is well tolerated, so almost no side effects. Obviously, even though they are kids, they need a higher dose to have an effect on um, the transaminases in the serum. They haven't checked any histological things in the liver, so it's just a very rudimentary study. But it also clearly demonstrates that maybe pharma industry should change their view and also start pharmacological trials in children at the same time we do it in adults. So because you, you cannot just say it works in adults, and then now let's try to see whether it also works in children. Right. Um, you might be skipping over, as with this, possibly with this drug, yeah. some stuff that has good effects in kids. Let's just, let me just add a few points to the description of the patient population, which is to say that the average age was about 15 years, that they had biopsy demonstrated mild to moderate fibrosis, although not cirrhosis, before starting, and that... Uh, Again, they did better. They did better. So they ran out of patients because of COVID. And then after the funding agency, which was the drug company trying to market this product, said, we're not interested in carrying it further. I think there might be room for approaching that drug company and saying, hey, guys, here is promising information. Can we start it up again? But that's, we'll have to leave that up to San Diego. Yes, it is, but um, I think based on this first data, it sounds at least promising. Fantastic. Now we move on to seronegative and seropositive celiac disease. Are there biomarkers out there? Are there behavior aspects of these disorders that let you tell one from the other? Well, celiac disease... I mean, if you meet some other pediatric gastroenterologist and you talk about celiac disease, it ends, you can have endless discussions. So how to diagnose it, even though there are guidelines out there. Um, so is it important to have a histology or is it not? I mean, at the moment we have the, the new ASPAN guidelines, which... Um, clearly say that you can omit performing a biopsy if you have two times more than 10 times elevated antibodies against mm -hmm. the transglutaminase. Whereas, interestingly, the NASPGAN guideline still requires the biopsy. But to mm -hmm. be fair, the NASPGAN guideline is now 18 years old. Hey, it's I a think, classic and it involves histopathology. Yeah, Don't go there. Yeah, <laughs> they should, they should, or I assume they will update the guideline quite soon. But I think what's important is that there is something out there that's called seronegative um, celiac disease. So where you have a normal level or no elevated um, antibodies against the transglutaminase, but still a clearly positive biopsy. 
And um, this is always a large debate. Is it really celiac disease or is it something else or whatever? And there are no real good studies out there on, on in the pediatric population. And I was really happy to see this study because it is really nicely done. So they had a four year period where they collected the patients. So it they went to the charts. So it's a, it's it's, um, it's retrospective. Yeah, it's but... retrospective, but they had a six to nine year follow up of the patients to make sure that they didn't develop any other disease okay. later on. Okay. So, okay. so what they said is it's seronegative celiac disease. If the biopsy is positive, if there are clinical suspicion, and if the patient becomes better with after, gluten restriction, yeah, after or under gluten-free diet, mm -hmm. and they also only included patients that showed histological remission after 12 months. Right. So, right. I mean, I think it's it's a very, very strict definition on seronegative celiac disease. What do you make of the hypogammaglobulinemia A that was observed in some of these patients? That does point to a little bit of a difference in um, immunologic background, doesn't it? Well, the, the decreased level of immunoglobin A is a common problem. I don't know how many percentage have this um, disorder. So it's, it, I think it's 10 to 15% that have it as a transient um, problem in early childhood. But I think 1 to 2 or 3% um, remain deficient of um, immunoglobin A. And yet in this cohort, it was, was it 50%? Yes, it was uh, it was substantially increased, of course, and I mean you cannot use the antibodies as a marker if you have this low immunoglobin A. So then you need to perform a biopsy anyway. So, but what's more important is that it's not all patients. No, it's not. So, so there are. 50% of the patients having normal Im immune globulin A levels, no antibodies mm -hmm. against the transglutaminase, but still have celiac disease. Well, as we drill down into this, that it becomes evident that either we haven't found the right biomarkers or that, <laughs> bear with me here, or that there's more than one disorder now being subsumed under the name of celiac disease, and we haven't sorted the categories within celiac disease quite correctly yet. I would go for the for the first. So I think we have quite nicely analyzed the pathophysiology of celiac disease, mm -hmm. but I think there is no 100% perfect biomarker. Not yet. So, and what I like about this paper is clinical symptoms. So these patients have clinical symptoms of celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And even though if they are, even though there are, or even if you have these patients and even if they are negative of these antibodies, you have a reason to perform a biopsy because you have your clinical assessment. 
So I think this is this is this is a nice example that that clinical assessment is still extremely relevant because let me just quickly go into into the numbers so it's five percent of all the patients having seronegative celiac disease so it's quite a substantial number uh, just i mean you can one percent of the of the population in europe has celiac disease and i mean so this is a high 1%. number it's not nothing yeah. yeah i mean in germany it's it's almost a million so Jeepers and and creepers. then you have five percent of a million uh -huh. that has seronegative celiac disease. Right. So fifty thousand. So this is quite a number. Fifty thousand, and they're all in your clinic. Cheap. Oof. Yeah, yeah, you assume that. So I mean, it's it's for for the lifespan, of course. And then what's also nice is or important, the patients here with seronegative celiac disease had three times longer period from first symptoms to diagnosis. So 3.7 years versus 1.3 years. Well, if that isn't, if that isn't an argument for earlier biopsy, I don't know what is. I think it's the, the, the most important thing is the clinician has to trust his assessment and not a number. Okay. Okay. Because okay. we are no machines. We are human beings. We belong to the nature, and nature is not always clear. And nature doesn't read the textbooks. Yeah, ni nicely, nicely said. Yes. So, well, um, Andreas, 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 I'd love to sit and chinwag with you even longer, but Selma has appeared on the screen, wagging her finger at us not her chin, and saying, it's time to go. Thank you so much for your insights into these articles. I always learn something from you, and I hope that our listeners have learned something too. Thanks to you, Alex. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and um, I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast, and you will um, tune in for the next September episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>